Welcome to Real Talk from the heart of Allen County, where we explore the lives of La Harp residents. No filters, true stories, just real talk. I'm your host, Richard Lucan. And I'm Tim Stauffer, your co-host. Let's get started. All right, well, we're here with another special edition of the podcast, Real Talk. And today I am joined by Dr. Wright. Uh, could you introduce yourself, please? Yeah, my name is Doug Wright. I'm the clinical director with Southeast Kansas Mental Health Center. And I wanted to speak with Dr. Wright today um, to talk about mental health. It's something that we don't speak about enough, especially when we think about um, teens and adolescents and just stress in the family unit. And so I've kind of got some questions that I was going to ask you, if that's okay. But um, first, could you just tell the audience a little bit about yourself, where you're from, how you came up to this corner of the world? Sure. Um, I'm originally from northwest Kansas, a small town uh, called Bird City, clear up in the opposite corner of the state. Um, I came here after I finished my doctorate in part for a loan repayment program, um, National Health Service Corps and have really grown to enjoy both the area and Southeast Kansas Mental Health Center. So I've been here for around 20 years now almost, so quite a long time. Wow. Huh. Huh. Yeah, that is a long time. But one thing that's fairly recent is kind of the, um, and I think SEK Mental Health, as I have it understood, has kind of been a pioneer in this, is, is offering counseling and therapy services in public schools. Can you tell me a little about little bit about like when that got started and how it, how it came about? Yeah, we originally started about four years ago, and that was in the Humboldt School District. Um, Misty Zarnowski and Stacy Hedlund at the elementary school there had reached out, and we partnered with them on a grant. They were very invested in getting mental health services in their school. And our initial grant four years ago allowed us to put what we called a behavioral health consultant. And while it was a therapist, they weren't really doing clinical services in the school. They were more just giving feedback and providing some guidance to uh, teachers, administrators, and school counselors. And then we saw the need there. And so then the next year we put in a therapist providing clinical services. And over the last three years then, we've grown that to include 10 different counties that we cover. Wow, so Iola, Humboldt, what are the other schools? Um, the other schools would be Chanute, okay. Erie, Fort Scott, up in Lacine, Garnett, Colony, Yates Center, um, Uniontown is one that we just recently added. Just this year? Just this year, yeah. Wow, six counties, I didn't realize. Yeah, we cover six counties down here, yes. Wow, Allen, Woodson. Allen, Woodson, Neosho. Bourbon, Neosho, um, who am I getting here? Anderson, Lynn County, my name's six, yeah. So, yeah. And what's been the response so far from teachers, administrators, parents? I think that the response overwhelmingly has been positive. Um, the schools are happy in the sense that kids miss less school than if they go to an appointment. Um, a lot of the administrators at schools talk about how a one-hour therapy appointment can turn into a half-day miss of school. Yeah. You know, kid gets a one o'clock appointment yeah. and then parents are like, oh, I don't have to take him back for the last couple hours and let him, you know, stay home or whatever. So it reduces the amount of absentee time to get services. Does it reduce in any way the stigma around mental health and kind of seeking out services? I'm just thinking, yeah, you're gone the whole day and the kids know that you're gone, you yes. know? And, and 
I, I think it really has. I think that particularly in the Humboldt School early on, we noticed that things became a little bit different. Typically, kids, particularly teenagers, are kind of hush-hush about the fact that they're in therapy. But with the therapist being in the school, we started seeing this dynamic where they're sharing with their friends and their friends were actually seeking out services in the school saying, hey, I want to come talk to that person too. It sounds like it's helpful. I think when you're integrated into the school, it, it seems more normal to kids yeah. and, and less of uh, something to be hidden. So I think it has broken down stigmas. I'm reminded of a, uh, I taught for almost six years in USD 500 at Wyandotte High School in Kansas City, Kansas. And um, a program that, that's not just focused on mental health, but it's called Bulldog, and it uh, incorporated KU Med, and once a week KU Med students and uh, physicians would be in our school building, and they would call students down for physicals, mental health services, um, you know, all sorts of connections to therapy, and, and um, really helped kids I mean, one thing was the access, the accessibility. Oh, I don't have to worry about finding a ride to drive across town. But also it was just um, part of going to school, you know, and part of going to school was being able to see the doctor every Wednesday. And I think that part of going to school, just like if you're hurt, you go to the nurse. If you're hurt in a different way, you can talk to somebody about it. And, I, you know, normalizing that to me, I think, is huge at an early age. Absolutely, I agree. I think it does, it does normalize it. And it also just breaks down so many barriers. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of parents in our communities both work. And it's really tough for those parents to take off work to get kids to appointments and bring them back and forth. Um, so by being in the school, it just kind of eliminates that as, as a reason that parents can't get them there. And with kids, can they sign themselves up for these services? Do they need a parent's permission? I mean, how much does the parent... Because I imagine there's uh -huh. a lot of confidentiality around. There, there is. So state law in Kansas says that children over 14 can initiate services, okay. but then we're still obligated to let the parent know. Mm -hmm. in, in the vast majority of cases, though, um, the parents are involved from, from the very start. That's really the preference is to have them included in, in both the treatment and, and providing consent and, and giving feedback. Hmm. As you look back over the four years and think about the growth and now... I imagine quite a, a working caseload, both past and present. Um, what's stressing kids out these days? <laughs> what do you think kind of the major stressors are as you look at kids? Do you serve even middle school students? Yeah, we, we serve K through 12. K so. so what's stressing kids out? Well, I, I think it's all of the normal things that we think of back when we were kids, but I think there's a whole other layer. And I think expectations on kids are so much greater than they ever were. What do you mean? Um, expectations from the school in, in many ways. Um, it was rare when I was a kid for there to be so much push to be in advanced classes, in college classes, those sort of things. Plus, I think there's more demands on their time. Uh, being a parent myself, one of the things that was vastly different then versus now is teachers and coaches expect kids to have phones. And so they're texting them after school, you know, practices at this time, or we're changing this, or you need to work on this. So it's this constant being plugged into school. You know, when I was a kid, after practice or after school, you're on your own. It was sort of free time. But now it's not uncommon to get a text or reminders or, or different things from the school or even their peers about schoolwork. And I think that adds another layer of stress and pressure to kids. Huh. Yeah, I'm 
I think PowerSchool is the app that they use here in USD 257. Yes. And so now at any time a kid can um, email a teacher, receive an email from a teacher, you know, check their grades, find out they're missing assignments. It's, um, there's a huge upside to that. There's a great upside to it, but it's also there's, it reduces that checkout time. And I think we all kind of need that time, whether it's from school or from work, we all kind of need some downtime. And I see kids having less of that in many ways. the effects are um, kids struggle more with sort of delayed gratification situations. They expect an answer now, they expect an answer quickly, and they expect to have to respond to others quickly. Another way that they, I think, don't get to unplug, I mentioned school and coaches, they don't get to unplug from each other because their friends are constantly texting and Snapchatting and, and always connection. So if you're a kid who's struggling um, emotionally or otherwise, um, you don't get to check out from that either when school ends because you're likely to see things posted and, and have to respond to that. So I think the, the cyberbullying is a piece that's it's also huge for kids right now. Yeah, I was talking with uh, Dr. Barnhart at uh, CHCCK or the, the clinic here mm -hmm. yesterday about that, and she said that the pressure is, you know, it's, it's never-ending, just kind of this wave of... Um, I mean, you can talk to each other through your video, video games, through your phones, you know, it's, it's, there isn't a time where you can just go and kind of disconnect from the world. And I think that's what you're alluding to. Yeah, I think that's exactly what I'm saying is there's no time to just disconnect and, and have true downtime. You're always plugged into others. What do you think stressing parents out as you look at parents in today's world, trying to deal with kids who are probably overprogrammed, overstressed, over pressure to be college and career ready, you know, mm -hmm. and kind of graduate with however many credit hours in college and be ready for these many work key certificates. I mean, I think there's a lot for the kid, but right. how do you see that translating to parents? I, I think it's kind of the same thing. I think there's greater expectations from parents from the schools of responding to emails or, or reminds or anything from a coach. I think there's more pressures in terms of that. And I think all parents want the best for their kids. So it's like this ever rising competition of, oh, now I better make sure my, my kids in college classes or better make sure they're in this AP class. I think there's more and more pressure. Um, and I think there's a financial pressure because college has become more and more expensive. So those parents whose kids are looking at college, they feel a lot of pressure to make sure they get a lot done in high school so that they can compete for scholarships. Mm -hmm. And then I think there's the other end of that where because of social media and the connection of kids, parents feel a financial pressure. And if you're on the lower SES um, band there and financially your family is really struggling, it's really, really hard when you see and hear things constantly about the things other kids are purchasing, whether it's the latest shoes or clothes or vehicles when they're in high school. And so I think for parents, there's not a disconnect because of the social connection of everything. So I think it's all the same pressures that were experienced before. It's just magnified now. So let's say you're a parent and you see your kid going through some stressful periods. I'm thinking spring, 
for seniors, it's what the heck am I going to do next year? Or I'm getting college admission or acceptance. Or, you know, maybe I'm declined from a college that I really, really wanted to get into. Um, or maybe, you know, I've got sports and just all the myriad pressures anyways with like relationships and friends. Mm-hmm. What do you think parents can do to help kids navigate all of this stress? That, as you're saying, I think, I think you're right. I think I, mean, I didn't have my first cell phone until I was, I can't remember, junior or sophomore in college. Right. You know, and now they've got them at fifth grade. How, how, how can parents help kids navigate this successfully? Well, I think it, it starts with building a relationship early on. And I think that's something that is much harder for parents because kids are so plugged in with their friends through video games, through phones, through all sorts of social media, that they tend to isolate more from the family. And I think making sure you have quality downtime where you're actually interacting and talking and doing things with your kids, when you build that relationship, that gives you the foundation. So then when they're struggling with something, A, they're more likely to talk to you, and B, they're more likely to be invested in what you say. And I think parents have to sort of safeguard to make sure while they're encouraging their kids to do all of these things, they're not accidentally sending the wrong message. What I mean by that is sending the message of, if you don't succeed, then I'm going to see you as a failure. I think sometimes in this high-pressure society we live in, we sort of miss that unconditional positive regard and, and letting kids know, no matter if you get into that college or that class or are starting varsity, I'm still going to care about you the same. I'm still going to love you. I think sometimes we push kids so hard wanting them to succeed, we forget that that really should be the base underneath all of that, is that they feel safe and secure, that regardless of what happens, their parents are going to be there for them. if you've got you know like no phones at the dinner table or you know like um, if you see parents kind of dealing finding successful strategies to deal with technology in today's world or if if that's even the the thing that needs to be tamed here I do think it's the thing that needs to be tamed and I think no phones at the dinner table is a great idea I think no phones after a certain time at night because another thing that a lot of studies have shown is kids are on their phones all night long they wake up They send a quick Snapchat or quick text. Somebody else's phone across town vibrates and they check that out. And so it really starts to disrupt sleep as well, Mm -hmm. as well as just the light coming off of our phones disrupts your sleep cycle. That blue light, correctly. So Mm -hmm. so those things are, I think, important to to make sure you're programming in time where kids don't have screen time. Um, But I also think parents have to at some in some ways engage that and, and kind of be a part of that um i think parents that are able to snapchat with their kids and kind of monitor some of that and at least even if they're not doing it themselves know what the children are doing i think it's helpful mm-hmm. so in other words not to just be a dinosaur who doesn't even <laughs> doesn't even understand it. it it's important to understand what your kids are experiencing so that you can at least talk about it when things come up in that that world that they live in how do you know, either from a clinical point of view or, you know, as an educator, as a parent, when what a kid's going through isn't just stress? When do you start to see something that says, hey, you know what, this might be something deeper? Well, I, I think a lot of times things deeper start with stress. 
and and it's just they don't seem to be able to cope. And I think it's one of those things that as a parent, if you see this isn't how my son or daughter typically acts, and it's been going on for more than a week or two, then it's time to really tune in. So I think it's more knowing your child. And when you see this isn't their norm, that's usually a sign maybe something deeper is going on. Do you think kids these days, who do you think's the first to see that? You think it's friends? You think it's parents, teachers? I'm just wondering, uh -huh. I remember as a teenager myself, I feel like my parents were always the last to know when something was wrong. I, I think often it is. I think usually it's friends first. Um, and then some teachers are really tuned in and maybe they're the next. And unfortunately, I do think parents are often the last. But again, I go back to my earlier comments. That's about building that foundation and relationship. Um, parents who I think have a stronger relationship, are they do tend to be more tuned into those things of when something's different. Do you see, I feel like most of what we've talked about so far has been some really novel challenges and, and situations that weren't in the past and kind of leads me to think, oh gosh, it's way harder to be a kid and a parent than, than before. And I, I think there are some new challenges, and I think you're right. Do you see anything that kind of gives you hope? That kind of says, hey, you know what, this is, this is some aspect about being a parent that's better than it used to be. Well, I, I think you touched on it earlier when you talked about power school. Because now for the first time, parents can get minute by minute how their kid's doing. They're not waiting till the end of the semester conference to hear, how's my child doing? They can be able to check grades, able to check that things are being turned in. I think that that gives them a, a great insight to a child that they didn't have before. And I also think um, technology has allowed us to connect with kids in different ways. We now get a glimpse, if you're on some of those social media sites that your kids are on, you get a glimpse into how they're interacting with their kids. And usually, at least when I was growing up, those social interactions were kind of hid because they, they happened away from parents. So I think we're getting greater insights. Um, and I think, I think today's kids have a great strength in that because of technology and being that first generation that's really growing up completely inundated with technology, it's second nature to them. I mean, we all hear the stories about how kids can jump on a computer and do things and are already showing their parents things because it's so second nature to them. And I think that's a great strength. I think it prepares them for a new way to live in the future in a way that they're going to have to because technology is becoming more and more a part of our lives. gender roles now to switch a little bit. Sure. I'm just going to kind of trace the generations of my own, mm -hmm. my father, his father, and then mm -hmm. his um, grandfather. And I think as we progress, and I'm just thinking of um, masculinity and the definition mm -hmm. of it, I, I feel like the role of a father being as rigid and as aloof as he used to be is 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 weaning like I don't think it's as strong um, I remember my father being very even though I think it was hard for him but you know making specific attempts very concrete efforts to reach out to me mm -hmm. and 
I don't think that happened with his dad, and I don't think it happened even before. I mean, I've read my uh, great-grandfather's autobiography, and, and he was kind of gone. You know, he was in the office. He was working a lot, but his role in raising the kids was kind of just like, you know, being the breadwinner. And I'm wondering if you feel like changing gender roles, specifically when it comes to being a dad and a mom, how you see that affecting kids, either in, in a positive or a negative sense, because I think things are different now, um, but I don't know how that affects kids and yeah. parenting. Well, I, th I think in general you're right. I think gender roles across the country are changing. I think in rural areas such as this, we're kind of a little slower to change than other areas, but I certainly have seen fathers be much more engaged. Even in the last 20 years, I've seen fathers becoming much more engaged than they ever were with their children. Really? You've seen that within the... Yeah, I think, I think, yeah, I think just within the 20 years that I've been doing clinical work here, I've seen, I've seen a shift. And, and one of the most obvious shifts that I've seen, 20 years ago when I first started with Southeast Kansas Mental Health Center, I would say it was 99% of the time it was the mother bringing the child in. Yeah. And now I would say it's probably closer to 50-50. Really? And so that's a pretty dramatic shift in just a 20-year period of time. And, and you just see it in so many other ways, just all the activities that, that both parents are now involved in. I think part of that is there's more shared responsibilities in lots of ways in families because more often than not now, both parents are working. That wasn't maybe the case two or three generations ago. Yeah. And so I think out of necessity, that forces those roles to kind of shift. But I think, I think it's a positive for kids because now they have two supports and, and maybe two people to turn to when things start to get difficult. So overall, I feel like it's a positive shift for kids. Yeah, I just read a really interesting um, article in The Atlantic just about boys and how it's still very hard for them to reach out for help and even communicate authentic feelings to not only their parents, but like to their peers, specifically their male peers that like, one line that really stood out to me was of a young boy who said, you know, when, when he's paired with another guy in a class assignment, it's always like, you know, they're kind of in a contest or not really open with each other. So he says, I'd rather work with girls because then I can, you know, be myself and be more open. <laughs> and I think we're still, I, it's cool to think that you've seen changes. I, I just I remember with my high school teaching experience, there was always more reluctance for boys to say when something was affecting them, you know, or just even say, hey, you know what, things are tough. I need some help. I think that's true. I think there are still those gender stereotypes, and I think there are still sort of subliminal pressures on boys to act a certain way and girls to act a certain way. But I do see that starting to shift. I see, I see boys now more willing to seek out help. Um, I think 20, 30 years ago, if you put a, a therapist in the school, you wouldn't see boys requesting to see that therapist. But we see that on a regular basis now. So I think that is shifting. While I still think those gender differences exist, um, and I think boys are still more hesitant to talk about their feelings, or to be vulnerable in that way, I do start to believe that there's a shift happening and I think school-based programming can be a big part of, yeah. of that shift. Yeah. What do you see as some of the biggest challenge in your work and in the therapists' work who are in schools and dealing with 
teenagers and, and parents. What's the hardest part about all that? I think I think some of the hardest part is whenever you're treating a child, you're really treating a family, because especially with younger children, you can only impact so much change in an hour a week or an hour every other week. You really need that parent buy-in to really make change, to give prompts and feedback throughout the child's week. Um, but one of the downfalls to school work, you know, school-based treatment is the parents aren't often there. So it's harder to have that contact with yeah. parents um, and to get that feedback and to, to help them make minor tweaks that can help support their child. And is so it, that's, that's difficult. Are the parents invited? Like, the, parent, the parents are invited. Um, they're required to kind of come to that first intake so they can sign consents. And they're always welcome to come and we encourage that. But parents are often working now and often busy. And so it's really difficult for them. And so I think they're a little less engaged in the school setting than we would like them to be. But I think that's still a work in progress. Hmm. Do you feel like this is a scalable model? Do you see a future where, um, you know, either behavior health consultants or therapists are, are in every school district? Do you think that's... I think it's very scalable. In the last couple of years, the state has had a pilot project to try to expand services within the school. And so you're seeing in Kansas right now, many, many schools are now having therapists in the schools. I think it's a very scalable model. I think the challenges to that are, so what happens in the summer? Because you can still see kids in the summer, but then it, it creates office space challenges. Do the kids actually show up for appointments? And of course, then that bleeds over to financial challenges um, because you're paying the therapist 12 months a year. And if they're only seeing kids actively nine or 10 months, it's, it's harder to make ends meet because there's a very small uh, margin there for what you can afford to do. Just a couple more questions. I kind of want to start to wrap up our conversation by asking you, what do you think the biggest rewards are in your work? What do you see that keeps you? Because I imagine it being tough. Mm -hmm. um, and especially for therapists or, you know, behavior health consultants that are in schools, being a teacher alone is draining, mm -hmm. you know? And so even to deal with tough emotional issues day in and day out, especially mm -hmm. in such a delicate time as, as adolescence, how do you guys make sure that the burnout rate is not eighty nine percent, and that you know people are saying, "Oh, I can't do this anymore"? How do you how do you keep going? Well, I think one is always having supervision and talking with other therapists, and and kind of having that level of support is important. But then I think you hang on to those successes when you see a child or an adult's life dramatically changed, and knowing that you had a part in that. And you've seen that. Absolutely. I mean, I've seen some, one of my favorite stories is, is an individual who had been on disability for PTSD for over 20 years, hadn't worked and coming in. And then after a few months of working with him, seeing him return to full-time work. And it's just life altering when you see something like that. One of the things about the school-based program that's really, really neat that we usually don't get to see in therapy is you get to see maybe a kid who's isolated with no friends and now you get to see him talking with people at the lunch table and doing those type of things and so i think in the school sometimes you get to see the fruits of your labor more often we're hidden away in an office and we hear about things but to actually see it so many of the school-based therapists have talked about how powerful that is to see wow 
this kid's life's really different. Not only are their grades getting better, but you know the whole social side of their life, their whole right. life is getting better. Right. One question I, I want to make sure I ask before I let you go is, um, we're in rural America, and you kind of alluded to that. And so in southeast Kansas, what do you see as some of the more acute issues that affect people at a higher rate or, or, you know, are a little bit more prevalent here than they would be in, say, Johnson County or, you know, if we were in San Francisco or Chicago? What do mm-hmm. you see as some of the things here that people are struggling with more? Well, I mean, several of the counties down here in southeast Kansas have really been identified at the national level as having some of the highest substance abuse rates of anywhere in the country. You know, the opioid stuff is is taking off here. And of course, meth has been a huge problem here for a long, long time. So I think certainly that's one aspect. But also, we live in very impoverished areas in rural America in general. And that brings on a whole another set of stressors to individuals that live here. So I think those are kind of key factors that maybe you wouldn't see in a Johnson County. Um, I think that that financial pressure is so important because it's something you can't escape. It's there constantly with you is that pressure of how am I going to pay for these things? And so that, that's, I think, one of the toughest stressors. How do you see that affecting kids? Do you? I mean, Absolutely, you see it affect kids. I mean, of course, there's the comparison to other kids who may have more, and that's one level of stressor. But I think sometimes parents don't realize kids are a lot more aware of what's going on than we give them credit for. When parents are feeling the financial stress and worrying about how do I pay bills, that stress trickles down directly to the kids. Mm-hmm. Even if they don't, if they're too young to understand the financial piece of it, they feel their parents' stress. And so it really becomes, you know, something that affects the entire family. How do you kind of, like you said, there's not a real easy way out. You can't just kind of say, okay, just imagine that you had different income. I mean, how do you kind of... I think you try to instill hope. Uh-huh. One of the things that, I have found so sad in my work here over the last 20 years is that I see these kids who have no hopes and dreams because they've seen generational poverty. And when you have generational poverty in a family, you never expect to arise above a certain level. So I think when you can find ways to help those kids believe, no, maybe I can get a better job than my dad, granddad, mother, grandmother, or maybe I can be the first person in my family not to be living on state assistance or the first person in my family to go to college. Mm -hmm. These seem like normal beliefs to most of us, but when you've had generational poverty, you sort of believe your ceiling is pretty low. And I think when you can start to instill hope that they can have a better life, that they can accomplish those things, you see that emotional lift start to happen. Oh, I imagine that'd be very powerful. I remember as a teacher, students who um, almost would go through some form of self-sabotage. When things got almost too good to be true, there was almost this switch that got flipped. No way. Can't actually happen. Nope. Too good. You know? Self-sabotage is real because we all prefer to stay in our comfort zone. Uh And even if that comfort zone isn't a really nice place to be, it's still your comfort zone. And so you can sometimes self-sabotage, even unintentionally self-sabotage. And sometimes it's just about the belief, I think, of, 
oh, this can't, this can't maintain. I'm really not this person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and at the same time, I'm reminded of students whose hunger and ambition still astounds me. You know, kids who hope against hope, yeah. they were going to do it. And um, I think that must be really rewarding to help students realize those dreams, make that possible. I mean, it's one of the most rewarding parts, I think, about being in education is to have a kid either, you know, with or without the dream specified, you know, but just say, let's take this brute talent, this energy, this passion for life, and let's take this to the wildest extent possible. I think that's a really special calling. Yeah, I I, I love that. You have some of those kids on one end that seem to have no hopes and dreams, but when you get those kids that are so optimistic and you can help help them grow and reach whatever their potential is, that's an incredible feeling. I really think there's very few lines of work more important than dealing directly with our country's future. So I think it's really cool work. And um, Thanks for talking a little bit about it today with us. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. Always happy to talk about our services and our programs because I think they really do change lives. And if somebody wanted to get in touch with you guys and say, hey, you know what, this sounds like something that would really benefit my niece, nephew, brother, how would they do that? They could just call here in Iola, they could just call our office at 620-365-5717 or call their local office in whatever town that they happen to, to be in. I'll make sure to put also a link in the bio to your guys' website as well. Great. Thank you. And that's what's real. We'll see you next time. Real Talk is produced by the Iola Register and supported by Thrive Allen County, Kansas Health Foundation, the Health Forward Foundation, and the residents of La Harp. To listen to more episodes, subscribe to Real Talk wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Real Talk or find us on iolaregister.com. And don't forget to like the Laharp Pride Facebook page to stay up to date.